data has shown that more than half of maternal deaths occur after the traditional six weeks postpartum mark. That's why ACOG has recognized the fourth trimester, and that happened back in 2018 with ACOG Committee Opinion 736, reflecting the fact that patients are still at risk after the first six weeks after delivery. One of the main areas of focus postpartum is on hypertensive care. Growing understandings of the long-term implications of high blood pressure and other medical complications of pregnancy have led to an increased focus on building transitions from postpartum care to primary care. This is essential for long-term well-being of women with postpartum hypertension. Now, here's some questions for us all to consider. Well, how many women will develop new onset hypertension after the six-week postpartum mark? And at what blood pressure cutoff should we start antihypertensive medications now that she's postpartum? And which medication is preferred for postpartum use? Is magnesium sulfate for severe range blood pressures effective beyond seven days postpartum? Man, those are all really good clinical questions that we just had recently on our postpartum rounds. So in this episode, we're going to tackle these questions and a lot more. So let's get into this topic, which is optimizing postpartum hypertensive care right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, my goodness, we've definitely covered hypertension in the past. I know we have a recent episode. I guess it wasn't that recent. It was some time ago where we talked about labetalol versus nifedipine. And we're going to talk about that in this episode Plus, so this episode is that episode plus, okay, plus more stuff that's obviously been out. But of course, as I've always said, we get ideas for the episode based on real world issues. And just the other day on call, one of the residents asked, hey, do we start medication when they're 150 over 100? Or is it 140 over 90 on a postpartum patient? Now, that's a soup. It sounds pretty easy, right? Pretty straightforward. But the data is not straightforward because it depends on who you read. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's a great topic. Uh, and I've, I've also said this, right? Every time somebody asks a question, if you, if you do podcasts or any kind of medical education, uh, after you answer the question that you're given, uh, ideally, you would know the answer to what you're asked. But if not, that's fine. We don't have to know everything. You have to know where to get the information. But anyway, I always think, oh, that's a great topic. <laughs> And so I answered, well, X, Y, or Z is the answer. It depends on who you read. Uh, and and what, what do you feel uh, is best in this patient? Because that's part of individualized care. Because it, it, that's, the answer is incomplete, right? Rather than just having a, a threshold, which is totally fine and acceptable, it's beyond that. The rest of the question is, well, what does the patient look like? I mean, did she, have, did she just come out of HELP syndrome? Does she have chronic hypertension uh, that's been under good control? And what is her baseline? Um, or 
issue morbidly obese, does she have other comorbidities? So all of those factors go into that decision-making of when to start antihypertensive therapy in addition to a certain cutoff, all right? And we're going to explain all of that in this episode. Uh, but And there's so many things that for all the data that's out there and it keeps coming, I, I always look uh, and I'm fascinated by some of these journals uh, and some of the articles that go, ah, postpartum medication, um, uh, whatchamacallit, works great. I'm going to just throw out whatever name. This one we've decided to call whatchamacallit. Uh, whatchamacallit works great. But wait a minute. None, the very few, I'm talking about like the minority of published studies that have looked at medication use for hypertensive control, either antepartum or postpartum actually have looked at what's called the gestalt of blood pressure. That's a good word, huh? the gestalt, <laughs> the overall feel. What, what is the patient hemodynamically doing so you can order the medication based on physiologic levels? That's called the rule of 55. Now, I'm not going to get into that now because we have a whole podcast describing the rule of 55. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, man, you got to go find that because that is the answer to which is the best medication to use for postpartum hypertension, it's it's the same answer for which medication do you use for urgent hypertension during pregnancy. So rather than just saying, oh, I, for everybody who's postpartum, I just give everybody nifedipine. Oh, wait a minute. That, that, that may not be a good choice for everybody. Uh, and, and you can't have this cookie cutter answer for everyone. So the short answer, even though we're going to get into the data, we're going to talk about labetalol, we're talking about nifedipine, we're going to talk about uh, Lasix, and, and is, is that a thing? Because I covered that in a separate episode as well. I find it interesting that, that, again, the minority of studies have actually said, well, we randomize patients to medications based on their initial systolic and diastolic ratio based on the hemodynamic principles uh, and hemodynamic response that the patient is in. That's called the rule of 55. But they don't do that. Uh, the majority of these studies have said, okay, we're going to look at labetalol or nifedipine for postpartum use, and we're going to randomize one to the other without taking into account what the patient's pressure is actually doing. Is she in a high output hypertensive state or is she in a normal output hypertensive state with increased systemic vascular resistance? That should dictate what medicine to give. So again, that's my little pet peeve and I've, I've talked about this many times in previous episodes that this is one of the problems with some of these studies of just you know, you know randomizing patients to this medication or that one with just because they have a certain cutoff value uh, for hypertension uh, instead of looking at what the actual hypertensive values are, which should dictate which medication to give. Guys, if you did not hear the Rule of 55 episode, this makes absolutely no sense to you. And so I urge you to go back and you got to listen to that because the Rule of 55, I learned that years ago uh, through uh, Dr. Mike Foley, through SMFM, uh, the, the pioneer in hypertensive disorders and pregnancy. And we, we should all go back to that basic principle of giving the patient what best suits her based on what she is doing rather than just giving every medication, every patient the same medication. Uh, that because that's what you do in a postpartum patient. So we're going to get into all of this in this episode. Now, if you're thinking, wait a minute, this sounds so familiar. Well, yes, we've done the rule of 55 before. Yes, we've covered labetalol versus nifedipine postpartum. We've done that many times. And we even talked about the Lasix study. But this is a way to put them all together in one place in, in a quick hopefully 30-minute episode. You know, it's not going to be 30 minutes because I can't help myself. But the goal is, uh, go, you guys, you know that the, our goal is originally to make each episode like 30 minutes. 
and it ends up being like 40 or 45 minutes or something because uh, I totally derail in 90% of the episodes like I'm doing right now. Uh, but but because I have so much that I want to get out and it's still under an hour. I promise. I don't think I've ever done a 60-minute episode. I don't think I have. I'll have Mike check that. But uh, I want to be targeted and quick. And so this is a way to combine all of those other episodes in one place because this is exactly what we talked about on postpartum rounds with our patient. All right, everyone. Now, before we get into the current material, just another, just a quick disclosure on on what we're talking about. We're talking about the initiation of antihypertensive medications in the non-urgent, non-severe patient, all right? Because that's the no-brainer. Everybody knows what to do with the 160 over 110 in the immediate postpartum interval. That needs to be treated. Uh, we, we get that, okay? That, so that's not what we're talking about here. The focus of this episode is when to treat non-severe, non-urgent hypertension, uh, ideally before discharge, so this is a patient who has chronic hypertension or gestational hypertension or preeclampsia of whatever flavor and you're about to send her home. The question is that what blood pressure cutoff do you need to send the patient or should you send the patient home uh, with a prescription for medication, ideally to start it in the hospital to see how she responds, okay? And, and this is, is the big question that we're going to get into here. Also remember that most cases of de novo postpartum hypertension occur within five to seven days after delivery. So they're doing fine and nothing else is going on, um, but she may have other medical comorbidities like she's obese, has pre-existing diabetes. They are at risk for the development of de novo postpartum hypertension typically within five to seven days after delivery. That's why in ACOG's Optimizing Postpartum Care, it it said this whole thing of we'll see you back in four or or six weeks postpartum uh, is way, way too laissez-faire, right? We've got to have more contacts within that first six-week interval, ideally uh, within the first uh, you know, seven to 10 days or so, or three to seven days based on their severity so that you can keep an eye on their blood pressure, all right? And another clinical pearl, remember that blood pressure peaks during the postpartum interval, uh, typically after they go home. So that blood pressure peak typically happens, again, on that five to seven day postpartum mark when the rest of the fluid has mobilized and, and the initial physiologic changes in vasodilation of pregnancy have now resolved, all right? Now, it is true that there is that bump in blood pressure within five to seven days postpartum. Uh, That's typical. Uh, But the good news is about 80% of those cases can resolve by six weeks postpartum. This is why continued contact points with the patient is such a big deal, all right? So just to rephrase, she delivers, you think everything's good. Uh, Five to seven days later, there can be a bump in blood pressure, which is physiologic. 80% of those will spontaneously resolve by six weeks postpartum. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't need to do anything about it. You can still treat them, and I'm going to explain that protocol here in a minute. But it's to keep an eye on this blood pressure, especially those at high risk, which are those who are African-American, obese, uh, pre-existing history of chronic hypertension, and or those who have developed some kind of hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. And of course, all women with postpartum hypertension 
all women, according to ACOG, need to be examined, need to have an evaluation for HELP syndrome. And that's just good clinical practice, especially within the first seven days postpartum. Now, Looking for HELP syndrome at six weeks postpartum is probably not that uh, vital because the chance of that happening while possible is much less. But, but the point being made is don't just look at the blood pressure itself. Look at the patient. How does she feel? How is she doing? And especially if it happens within seven days, ACOG does say, and the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, CMQCC, says that within seven days, it is worth, it is best practice to draw some labs to make sure you're not missing a form of HELP syndrome. Okay, podcast family. So we're talking about those who develop a a bump in their blood pressure five to seven days postpartum, and then it usually resolves by six weeks. And and this is the problem, right? We see them at six weeks like, oh, oh, I have fixed you. You have delivered. Your pressure is now normal. I have done this. And we're happy. Everyone's good. Blood pressure resolved. They're not out of the woods. So remember that one of the criticisms, one of the praises and criticisms for ACOG was that, hey, thank goodness, finally, we're we're recognizing it's not just six weeks that the patient is at risk. We expanded it to to the first 12 weeks, that fourth trimester. That's great. But the criticism is, um, yeah, bad stuff can happen actually up to a year. So we thought we were good with the fourth trimester, uh, you know, ending watch at 12 weeks. But the point that that the data is showing and that we have to understand is that patients, because of pregnancy, which is a a form of a stress test, can actually predispose women to hypertension and gestational diabetes and other things, of course. We all know that. Uh, But it doesn't necessarily happen within the first six weeks and definitely doesn't need to happen just within the first 12 weeks postpartum. A recent published study that was released in November of 2022 that was led by a Boston University School of Public Health researcher found that one in 10 women, guys, that's 10%, that's not negligible, 10% of women who did not have high blood pressure during or immediately after pregnancy went on to develop hypertension within a year after they gave birth. All right, is that crazy or what? So let's, let's, there's a lot there. So the idea is, hey, de novo, right? They didn't have GTN. They didn't have preeclampsia. They weren't chronic hypertensive before. But according to this, to this publication that was published in the American Heart Association's journal called Hypertension, uh, they found that one in 10 women develops high blood pressure and they they think that the, the tie-in it's not just coincidence that happened a year after delivery but is that that those physiologic remodeling that physiologic stress of pregnancy uh can bring this on now let's let's be very honest thankfully it's not 20 percent or 30 percent but 10 percent is not negligible guys all right so remember this uh th- and uh, this is something that we can't uh, forget to tell patients about that just because they hit the first six weeks or 12 weeks, they got to get watched for that first year and then annually thereafter, especially if they have some some high risk factors. And according to this publication, the biggest risk factors, as you would guess, were those at 35 uh, years of age or above, if they were former or current smokers, and oddly, if they delivered their baby via C-section. Now, not sure what that one's about. Is just That could be an association. Again, not really called 
causation. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the biggest factors that they also found was that the highest risk, as you would guess, uh, was in non-Hispanic black patients, all right? Now, this study, again, out of Boston, was ethnically, ethnically diverse, and it had a broad population base. Uh, and, and these are things to keep in mind that just because a patient clears six weeks to uh, 12 weeks, they're not out of the woods. That study was led by Parker et al. Again, in 2022, originally went out as an EPUB and then officially in print February 2023 in the journal Hypertension. The title was De Nuvo Postpartum Hypertension Incidents and Risk Factors at a Safety Net Hospital. So this Parker study was very interesting. I mean, it, it just, if, if anything, it's like, oh, patients aren't out of the woods up to a year after they delivered, right? Because pregnancy takes a big toll on the body. But there are some limitations to this. This was not a prospective cohort. These patients weren't followed directly. It was through a, a database medical record search. And so that's one of the issues. And, like, you know, it's, it's all looking through through data mining, but some things you have to do that way because it's too hard to do otherwise. Uh, and they looked at all blood pressure measurements from the prenatal period through 12 months after delivery, all right? And this was taken either within the hospital or during the follow-up office visits. And it also included any other visits that the patient had either in the ER or their urgent care centers and or uh, some other admission process, okay? And again, this was through 12 months after delivery. And they defined hypertension just the way we all do, not using the AHA rules or the American Cardiology Association. They used um, the typical 140 over 90 like we do in obstetrics, all right? And so what's the take-home message here? Well, it's a data mining thing. It wasn't a prospective cohort, but still gives good info. And the answer was, well, well, the question is, well, who's at risk? The answer is yes. I mean, mean, pretty much everybody's at risk, although those with highest risk factors, as you would guess, smoking, obesity, over the age of 35, previous history, non-Hispanic black race, those things are near universal. Uh, in most of these publications regarding hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. But, but it does give this idea that going, calling it the fourth trimester is good, extending to the first year postpartum is even better because these are real issues. And as it relates to what we're talking about here, optimizing postpartum hypertension, getting on top of blood pressure quickly. Right? Don't let it escalate. Now, let's relate it all together, right? Let's, let's come back full circle. We said 80% of blood pressure issues can go away within six weeks, but 20% will not. And even though they had blood pressure issues already identified, it doesn't mean that they won't get it de nuvo. okay? That's, that's the take-home message. Now that we've said that, let's get into what ACOG says about treating. Now, what threshold should we initiate antihypertensive treatment postpartum? And I'll tell you why it's a little controversial. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACOG's Task Force on Hypertension in Pregnancy recommends that we start oral medication for blood pressures greater than or equal to 150 over 100 in the postpartum interval. 150 over 100. Now, that's what ACOG says. Again, I'm very ACOG friendly. I appreciate that guidance, but it is controversial and I don't really like it. I do believe that's a little high and I'm not alone. This has become controversial because of the idea of of letting patients go for now what is called stage two hypertension in the new guidelines, all right? Maybe we should have a lower threshold and be more conservative now that new data has shown that outside of pregnancy, even blood pressures in the 130s to 140s over high 80s to 90s is not good long term. All right. So there are experts in SMFM who suggest a lower threshold starting medication at 140 over 90 if it's persistent after multiple blood pressure measurements. All right. So don't do it if it's one pressure that's 140 over 90 and all the other pressures are 110s over 60s. I mean, come on, guys. Let's have some 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 kind of critical thought here. And then the question that we had on rounds is is that we can be so academic. It's well, what what percent? of them do they have to be abnormal? Is it 30%? Is it 50%? Oh, man. You see, how, leave it to, to clinicians and residents in academic medicine to, to get into the, the real nitty-gritty, right? And the reason we don't have that is because it depends on a lot of factors. What is the patient's age? What is her pre-existing conditions? Uh, how sick was she uh, peripartum? Uh, has she been on antihypertensive meds in the past? Is she a smoker? So there's all of these factors that go into that. So if you're ever asked or you're asked on the oral boards, uh, what blood pressure should you start antihypertensive meds postpartum? Well, that depends on who you read. ACOG says 150 over 100 because we don't want to over-treat people as they normalize their own blood pressure. But others say persistent blood pressures at 140 over 90 has to be treated now that we've recognized that even lower blood pressures than that long-term are, are not good. So it depends on who you read. So let's just stop right here. If you're thinking, I'm not starting people on 140 over 90. I mean, that's that's not that high. I mean, they can correct that by themselves as they mobilize fluid and pee. I get that. That's not necessarily wrong. But the data does show that they can be potentially uh, in danger here. And if you're not going to start them on medication, totally okay. Short-term follow-up, like within three to five days, if possible, uh, and or have them check home blood pressure uh, uh, measurements at home. I'm going to get into that in a minute because I am not that big of a fan of antepartum blood pressure checks based on the BUMP trial, that's B-U-M-P, which showed didn't really do anything, didn't really help very much. Uh, But there is evidence for home blood pressure monitoring postpartum now that the pregnancy itself uh, has resolved, all right? So does home blood pressure monitoring uh, help? Well, it depends. Probably helps more postpartum based on the data and marginally helps antepartum based on the bump trial, okay? But there is data that not treating people uh, with blood pressures of 140s over 90 in the immediate postpartum interval uh, does set them up for, for some other hypertensive issues, 
in patients on antihypertensive therapy, systolic blood pressures greater than 140 with a diastolic greater than or equal to 90 in the 12 hours before discharge was associated with a threefold increase in the risk for readmission because of hypertensive complications compared to those who were discharged normotensive. Now remember, that data that was published in the pink journal, that's AJOGMFM, that was just January of 2022. That was published by Lovgren et al. This was in patients who already were on antihypertensive meds. So the idea is that that's really the, the, the top floor that we, we should be looking at. At 140 over 90 should be the ceiling and not higher than that, okay? Now, that was, again, on patients already in antihypertensive therapy, but it makes the point that that those patients with 140 over 90 in general, especially those with a pre-existing diagnosis of hypertension, uh, they're at higher risk of coming back with readmission for uncontrolled high blood pressure. So, see, there is data that 140 over 90 uh, is not necessarily the best. It could be a marker of readmission or of blood pressure exacerbation once they go home. Why don't we take a little breath here, just relax for a minute, because we've still got a lot way to go, long way to go, we'll talk about specific medications and which one to use. Uh, and, and again, I, I want to get into a little bit more of my pet peeve there about not looking at the rule of 55. But this issue of, of, of putting patients on blood pressure medication to a target of 140 over 90 or slightly below is, is, is a thing, all right? which is interesting because ACOG still uses 150 over 100, which is totally legit. Uh, but but th- it is gray whether to use 140 over 90 or 150 uh, over 100, okay? Now, there was data uh, that was published out of the gray journal, not the pink, but the gray journal, the American Journal of OBGYN in 2020, that was published by HOP et al. That's H-O-P-P-E. Okay. This was a study that looked at home blood pressure monitoring postpartum. Now, I've got a whole episode on the bump trial that looked at home blood pressure monitoring antepartum. And yeah, it didn't really do a whole lot. It didn't really prevent a lot of adverse outcomes like we thought it would. I'm still, I'm not saying I'm not a fan of doing it, that you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying know that it probably has marginal value antepartum because there's so many factors that go in, in, uh, in, into play there. And you got to listen to that episode because... Just giving a patient a log and a blood pressure device and saying, take your blood pressure once in the morning and once in the afternoon, uh, which is the preeclampsia foundation guideline, is not enough. They have to know how to do it. I've had patients say, oh, I lie down and I was watching TV and then I checked my pressure. I'm like, well, when you were lying down? Yeah, I was on the couch. Oh my gosh, don't do that. I mean, there's ways to do it, right? Sitting upright, uh, quiet for at least three to five minutes, legs not crossed, feet flat on the floor, uh, arm at heart uh, length. I mean, there's all these rules. The cuff has to be the right size. And that's why uh, when the bump trials came out, bump one and bump two, like, uh, you know, there's no way to really stratify that they did it right or not because they were at home and not being observed. But if you take away the biggest factor there, which is the pregnancy, and put the patient postpartum, there does seem to be some data that in those who check blood pressure measurements at home in the postpartum state can have some benefit. Because according to that study from 2020 in the Gray Journal, those who did home blood pressure monitoring and were educated on what to look for showed an 88% reduction in readmission risk compared to those who didn't participate in the home blood pressure measurement program. 
All right. But again, notice it's a program. It's not just, hey, go to Walgreens or CVS uh, or Target and get your blood pressure cuff and take your blood pressure. Uh, you know, no caffeine. You can't just come uh, up or down to fly the stairs. They have to know how to do it correctly. So, yes, I'm a total fan for home blood pressure monitoring postpartum. And I accept it for antepartum, knowing that there's some potential limitations, knowing that there's more value if they actually collect that blood pressure correctly. All right, podcast family, we are on the move here. So what happens if you give a patient medication and then you see her back on postpartum and she's actually normotensive on meds and she has no history of chronic hypertension? Right, So she had hypertensive disorder pregnancy, we'll call it gestational, or preeclampsia with not severe features. You've sent her home on medication. She comes back now, let's say, day seven, right, after that five to seven day where the bump in blood pressure should have happened, and she's normotensive. Do we take her off the meds? Well, according to ACOG and published reports and commentaries, quote, it is reasonable to stop antihypertensive drugs after approximately three weeks of use, end quote, and continue to monitor their blood pressure after medication. So the idea is you don't want to get them off too fast and you don't want to leave them on too long if unnecessary. And then once you stop the medications, they do need to be followed either in the clinic, through telehealth or at home to make sure they don't have a bump. So just because you start a patient on blood pressure medication postpartum doesn't mean you've committed them to their entire life, and that's very reassuring to patients. So we tell our patients that, look, I'm giving this now. It's called a bridge. It's just to bridge this initial time, and then we'll see when when we can stop that based on what your blood pressure does, all right? With a great chance that you could be off medication within six weeks, knowing that you are at risk of this thing bouncing back, maybe at 12 weeks after delivery, up to a year after delivery, which is why it's important that you keep getting your wellness checks. Okay, that's how that conversation goes. Oh, hold on, hold on, guys. Before we get into which specific med uh, to use, and we'll talk about labetalol, nifedipine, we'll talk about ACE inhibitors a little bit. Ooh, that's kind of a questionable thing, and I'll tell you why in a minute, although I'm sure you know, but we'll we'll discuss that in a minute. Um, The other issue is for patients who develop de novo hypertension, right? So those who come back uh, that, you know, they were totally fine during pregnancy and they come back within, you know, let's say seven to 10 days and you're like, oh man, now they've got hypertension, whether you see them in the clinic or they're in the ER for some other reason. Remember that new onset hypertensive disorders in pregnancy that develop for the first time in this postpartum interval, they tend to be sicker, all right? So new onset preeclampsia, new onset hypertension postpartum, meaning they didn't have it before. There's a different pathophysiology there, right? Remember, most hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, HDPs, go away within, uh, you know, starting one week and then two weeks up to six weeks. We said 80% will do that. So once that pregnancy is removed from the patient and the stress hormones and the angiogenic factors and the pro-vasodilatory uh, factors get back to, to their baseline, they should be getting better. But if, if they start with de novo hypertension after pregnancy, something is odd, okay? They tend to be sicker because now they're going through vasospasm potentially for a whole other reason that's unclear. So we, we've known now for the last 15 years is those who get preeclampsia for the first time postpartum or hypertensive disorder postpartum, 
they, they tend to be sicker. They are at higher risk of pulmonary edema, of cardiomyopathy. So remember to, to, be, to be very conservative with these. Don't brush them aside. Look for shortness of breath. Get an O2 sat. Uh, if there's any concern of, of dyspnea, get a BNP, an EKG, and a chest X-ray and have a low threshold for cardiac echo, especially in patients who have other risk factors like they're obese, they're non-Hispanic, uh, African or uh, African American, and or they're above a certain cutoff uh, age, which is 35, all right? And if necessary, remember multimodal team, multidisciplinary. So women's health, the nurse practitioner, the midwife, all that's fine. Get uh, an obstetrician and get cardiology. And if your area has a cardio obstetrician, then, then that's even better. Remember, we covered the new discipline of cardiology, cardio obstetrics uh, some time ago. We did that for ReachMD. Uh, I'm sure you can find that online, uh, th- that there's a whole new specialty uh, of cardiology that's not of MFM or obstetrics. That's of cardiology called cardio-obstetrics, knowing that they have such different uh, pathophysiology and, and physiological demands that that required its own expertise, and that's cardio-obstetrics. Well, my goodness. All right. Finally, we get to which med do we use? Because that's something that I asked our team when we were rounding. All right. So this patient has uh, between 140 and 150 and diastolics were in the high 90s. Short of it is, of course, we started her on antihypertensive med with a short term follow up. We were going to see her like in five days postpartum. All right. So the question is, well, which med do we traditionally give? And as I've already mentioned, we're not going to belabor this point, but uh, you've got to look at that rule of 55 because that should that should be the first thing that guides your treatment, not just, well, according to this study that randomized patients into medicine X or medicine Y that showed this conclusion, which we're going to get into in a minute. And that's all very helpful, but, but it'd be more helpful if we match the medication to their, to their hemodynamic response. Now, remember that labetalol has been the traditional antihypertensive med during pregnancy, during antepartum interval, because labetalol, and remember, guys, that is a non-selective beta blocker that has some alpha blocking activity, okay, that seems to have less placental hits, less, less placental disruption uh, to the uteroplacental blood flow than selective beta-1 blockers. And there's absolutely no problem using labetalol postpartum if the patient needs it based on her hemodynamic state, all right? So there's no problem with continuing that. The problem with labetalol, though, is that it can be a compliance issue because it's multi-dose uh, uh, use throughout the day, right? BID or TID, and nobody's got time for that, especially with a newborn. So that's why there's all this interest into other medications, uh, including diuretics. So postpartum, uh, Lasix seems to work great, especially for those with preeclampsia because of that third space issue and they're mobilizing fluid in. It seems to be better, obviously, for those that are uh, volume overloaded. Now, I know what your fear is. Like, wait a minute, doesn't labetal, I mean, doesn't Lasix, can't that bump kidney function? Look, man, that's long-term at high dosages where you can make patients persistently pre-renal. But remember that even frostamide has a role, Lasix has a role in some forms of acute kidney injury because it helps open up uh, urine production uh, and, and it prevents um, uh, further damage to the kidneys. So it, it, because these women are in general young reproductive age uh, and they're not really pre-renal, uh, now they have extra volume, it's just not in the vascular space, if they're third spacing with low uh, oncotic colloid pressure because they're proteinuric, 
but they will mobilize that. So they're not really pre-renal. All to say, don't fear Lasix postpartum. There's great evidence that Lasix given before discharge and continued for the first few days after discharge can prevent blood pressure trajectories from going high. All right. Plenty of studies that have looked at this. Now, I'm not a big fan of Lasix for, for days and most, most only use it for five days because after five days, you could potentially get into some decreased milk production, okay? Uh, but I've used Lasix absolutely. I'm a big fan, especially in-house, giving it early within 12 hours or 24 hours, especially if they're very edematous. I hit them with 20, give them another dose the next day. And it's amazing just for symptomatic release, uh, relief so they're not walking on big swollen sponges of their feet. That's just uncomfortable. Uh, and it really helps to bring down that preload to keep blood pressure down. And again, many, many data, uh, much data has looked at this that shows that it's effective. The One of the more recent ones was that five-day course of 20 milligrams of Lasix when it was given to patients, this was a randomized trial, who were postpartum, uh, showed that they actually had lowered blood pressure trajectories, uh, but it didn't really prevent any readmissions different than placebo because of how the study was designed, right? But that was the Lopez uh, Perdiago study that was published um, in 2021 in the journal Hypertension, right? And I, I have a podcast on that. So can you use Lasex postpartum? Absolutely. Ferrosamide, either five days of 20 milligrams. I used it only for 48 hours at 20 milligrams and it works very, very well. And there is level one evidence that Lasix uh, seems to work okay. Now, if they do have uh, a creatinine that's like 1.2, then I, I, I may use it once and see how they respond, follow up a creatinine. Because if you use continued furosemide, you'll get a natural physiologic increase in creatinine, which doesn't necessarily mean that the kidney is getting any worse. It's just the, the, the normal side effect of using the medication. So it's okay to use it if they're young, reproductive age, don't have any chronic renal issues. And short term, it can help reduce uh, these blood pressures. In a separate editorial commentary of this publication, of this study, the editor wrote, quote, an immediate clinical implication that can be drawn from the trial by Pediago is that a small dose of 20 milligrams of oral furosemide for five days postpartum started within the first 24 hours of delivery in patients with hypertension can reduce the prevalence of persistent elevated blood pressures and achieve faster optimization of blood pressure control. No significant adverse outcomes were seen with furosemide, and it appears to have been well tolerated by the study participants. They go on to say, this could become a standard of care among patients at risk for severe complications related to high blood pressure in the postpartum interval, including those who are obese, black, or those at increased risk due to traditional poor compliance with follow-up, end quote. Again, that was also in the journal Hypertension. That was the May 2021 editorial based on the publication of the study that we just quoted. So yes, there's plenty of evidence that Lasix can work. Um, if, especially again, if there is that high output a hypertensive state with that rule of 55 is exceeded, then it's something to consider, especially if they're third space edema, uh, if they're pitting edema in their feet, man, give that patient some LASIK. 
All right, y'all, you all know me too well, right? Come on, you know I'm not going to leave it that easy because medicine is tricky and it's got some issues. It's a little controversial because we talked about that RCT. Great, that showed effectiveness. All right, or woohoo, we get that. But that's not the whole story because there's other studies that have shown it uh, not to work so well. <laughs> so there was another systematic review that was published the year prior in 2020. Right? Remember that hypertension study that showed the five days of LASIK seemed to work, um, worked better in, in those without severe disease, just those with regular hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, that seemed to show efficacy. But the year before in 2020, they're like, eh, I don't know, kind of some mixed results, maybe, maybe not. So, so why the differences here? Why did a systematic review published the year before the study that we just talked about have mixed results? And then this RCT gets a commentary that says, oh, this could be the new standard. Ah, right, guys? See? Controversial. So it is the traditional he said, she said. Why? Why is it controversial? Guys, here's a simple answer. Because it's not going to work for everybody if you don't apply the rule of 55. Remember that the rule of 55, if that delta, if the systolic and diastolic is greater than 55, then what works best for them? Something that takes away preload because they're in a high-volume state or something that decreases the contractile strength of the heart, a.k.a. labetalol. That's why there's mixed results in these studies because they don't tailor it to the gestalt of the blood pressure. So I have to be fair balance here. I'm letting you know all the data. That 2021 publication for five days of Lasix got a lot of airplay. We did an episode on it, but not everybody agrees because it's not going to work if you don't apply that rule of 55 correctly. Oh my goodness, I just saw one of our residents. Uh, I'm taping this uh, in the hospital because I'm on call. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm like rambling on this thing. So I'm at 39 minutes uh, in our draft of this episode. And I still got a little bit to go. So uh, my point in telling you that is, hang with me, guys. I promise we're, we're rounding the end here. I just want to cover a couple other meds. So we talked about labetalol, how antepartum, that's the med to go traditionally. Procardia seems to work better just because of compliance issues postpartum. Now I'm going to get into that now. And then we just touched on the on the Lasix issue, which either as a one or uh, two times uh, dose or a five-day protocol is going to be totally fine, super kidney friendly. Uh, it's not going to affect the kidneys because these patients are otherwise young, healthy, reproductive age, and they don't have a, a chronic pre-renal issue where we're going to make uh, you know acute kidney injury somehow worse. So it, it, it seems to be fine. Now, quickly on for nifedipine, because again, I have an episode on that. Remember, we're trying to group all of these different ideas into one episode, aka this one right now. But that data that compared labetalol with nifedipine was out of a meta-analysis in BJOG that's now been, what is that, like six years old-ish uh, in 2016, all right? So in 2016, uh, BJOG looked at a meta-analysis of nifedipine and labetalol, and the first author was uh, Shekhar. And again, I've got an episode on that. Short of it is, yes, in general, nifedipine seemed to work much better, seemed to keep people out of the hospital with persistent hypertension compared to labetalol. Why? Well, maybe some of the reasons that were uh, hypothesized was just ease of use, uh, versus the multi-dose of labetalol. So all to say, there is data for nifedipine. I do like nifedipine in the postpartum interval, although uh, just like everything else, the data for all of these meds has been at some point conflicting 
because it is conflicting if you don't apply the rule of 55, all right? But nifedipine also has a role, not just as uh, as a peripheral vasodilator, which is great, but it does have a beneficial effect, guys, on urinary output, which also drops mean arterial pressure. Okay, and that's especially when it's used within the first twenty four hours of postpartum patients who in patients that are, that have preeclampsia with severe features because it can help mobilize some of that fluid as well because you have a, a dual effect you get peripheral vasodilation going to the kidney and it helps with urinary output. Right, so it's not a diuretic, but nifedipine does have a beneficial effect on urinary output, and that was published back in nineteen ninety in the Gray Journal, the American Journal of OBGYN, and Barton et al said, oh, wow, it's kind of weird. They kind of opened up their their kidney uh, with nifedipine because of the vasodilatory effect. So all to say, does nifedipine work? Yes. Does labetal work? Of course. What about Lasix? Sure. So there is not one study that has shown superiority of one medication over all the others uh, because the idea is just do something. Now, whether you call it 150 over 100 as your threshold or 190, 140 over 90, then that depends. There's room to discuss on that. What we don't want is to, is to do nothing at all, all right? So, yes, there is data on labetrol. There seems to be a benefit for nifedipine postpartum um, for prevention of readmissions. And then, again, for short-term Lasix, that also has data. Speaking about nifedipine, there was a recent study from May of this year so, guys, just what is that? Let me do some quick math in my sleepy state. Uh, that's six months ago. <laughs> so, six months ago, that looked at a dual medication combo compared to single-use nifedipine. So, let's just stop there. Right? This was published in AJOG. All right. Uh, why do we? Why would we ever give two meds to see how it compares to one? If this whole issue is a compliance issue, uh, a newborn at home changing diapers, breastfeeding, and then taking two medications compared to just one, that just doesn't seem very user-friendly. But this was a randomized trial. Patients were randomized to receive either the combination hydrochlorothiazide and lisinopril compared to nifedipine. Oh, right. And you're like, well, why would you do that? I don't know. But anyway, let me just show you what they did. The primary outcome was stage two hypertension. Remember, that's 140 over 90 in the American Heart Association rules, American College of Cardiology guidelines. And, and looking to see who could keep blood pressures down, at least in the short run, okay? Well, short of it is, yada, yada, a lot of studies, a lot of analysis, analysis. This wasn't a whopping trial. The numbers were, were pretty small. But again, still, it, it, it met the criteria of what they were looking for. And of 111 eligible individuals, 70 agreed and were randomized, 31 in the combination group, 36 in the nifedipine group. Well, the short of it is the authors found, yeah, I mean, two medications, obviously, you would think it'd work, and it did, um, and it seemed to work just as well or slightly above uh, efficiency effectiveness compared to single-use nifedipine. The author stated, quote, results of the pilot trial suggest a high probability that combined hydrochlorothiazide and lisinopril produce superior short-term blood pressure control when compared to nifedipine. But this needs to be confirmed in a larger trial, end quote. So again, I'm all for more data and looking at how to control blood pressure postpartum, but two meds compared to one is just not ideal. Now, this medication did use, remember, this was lisinopril 
and hydrochlorothiazide. Thiazide is diuretic. I'm not worried about it. Lisinopril as an ACE inhibitor in general. Um, while totally it looks attractive in postpartum use, remember that in reproductive age women could be an issue. Now, let me just say this as a clinical pearl, ACE inhibitors and even ARBs, all right? Uh, everyone is afraid of them and we should in reproductive age women, but it's not really a, a malformation issue in the first trimester, okay? So remember this, that ACE inhibitors and ARBs and even direct renin inhibitors, which are generally not used in pregnancy, are more of a risk in the second half of pregnancy, okay? This does not seem to be an organogenesis issue. It has to do with once renal function is working, it can affect renal uh, uh, functioning and, and, and renal blood flow so that they have a higher rate of oligohydramnios, of some bony defects, but this happens in the second half of pregnancy, all right, not in the first half. So to be very clear, ACE inhibitors in the first trimester are not ideal, but they're totally okay to use with the idea that most would say you got to switch just to be done with that uh, by the end of the first trimester, okay? Most of the issues with ACE inhibitors happen at the second half of pregnancy. Now, Talking about kind of a, of a diuretic renal uh, medication, the one that is a little different here is spironolactone. Remember that spironolactone is a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist that also has antiandrogenic effects, right? And this is an issue because we use a lot of spironolactone. Well, 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 I do. When in patients who come in with hirsutism complaints uh, and, and don't want to be on a drospirinone, I'm like, great, I'll give you this medication, spironolactone, eventually you'll work because nothing works overnight for its anti-androgenic effects. But they have to know that contraception should be done. If they don't want to take the pill, they got to use a barrier or an IUD or something because there is this theoretical issue of, of, of blocking true masculinization, androgen uh, effects of the external genitalia, all right? Now, how much of that is theoretical and how much of that is a real risk is unclear, but we definitely know that in animal models, that feminization of male rats is definitely seen uh, when exposed to the, uh, to this medication in the first trimester, all right? So while ACE inhibitors, ARBs, direct renin inhibitors tend to be more of an issue in the second half of pregnancy, they, they are not really much of an issue early on, but spironolactone, because of the real issue here of feminization of, of the genitalia for male offspring, uh, just something to bear in mind. So would this work in the postpartum interval? Of course, but patients should be aware that there's some issues, again, with future uh, conception and pregnancy, not that it's going to make them infertile, but, but the potential for fetal effects uh, based on their use, based on trimester of exposure, okay? Okay, everyone, we're coming to the end. And as our final point of discussion, mag sulfate use, right? Now, remember, especially within the first seven days, if somebody presents with signs or symptoms uh, or urgent hypertension based on cutoffs of 160 over 110, then those patients need mag. We get that. That's, that's, that's a no-brainer. And remember that back in May of 2022, we did a whole episode on magnesium sulfate 
for preeclampsia is 12 hours the same as 24 hours. And we took a look at all that data, all right? Because some patients can be totally okay with just 12 hours if they meet criteria, all right? So you got to go back to May of 2022 where we covered uh, magnesium sulfate, uh, 12 hours compared to 24. And that was based on a systematic review that was published in the Green Journal that took a look at 10 studies at that time. Okay, so you got to go back and listen to that. Man, why am I so long-winded today? It's weird. I mean, you all tell me. Send me a little message. Have I rambled on this one? I don't know. I feel like I have. I'm kind of like wandering today. I'm not sure what's going on. Very quickly, here's a quick clinical pearl for MAG, all right? If you ever asked or you're on rounds with residents or med students, here's a good stumper, all right? Uh, what's the percent of, of patients who will have an eclamptic seizure after the first 48 hours? Hmm. That's a good question, right? Well, it's 26%. According to published data, 26%, guys, that's a lot. It's not like 5% or 6%. 26% will have an eclamptic seizure outside the first 48 hours. That that's, needs to be said. And that's why it's a good clinical pearl. And remember, it can occur all the way up until six weeks post-delivery, although it's pretty rare at that time. And if you ever have a seizure at six weeks postpartum, you've got to do your due diligence to make sure it's not a med effect, it's not trauma-related, like a closed head injury, and of course, not a weird epileptic issue or something else. You've got to it's, – it's a clamp to proven otherwise, but the majority will occur uh, within the first 48 hours up to the first seven days, okay? Now, here is another clinical pearl. As many as 78% of postpartum patients – have no previous diagnosis of hypertensive disease with the antecedent pregnancy. Guys, did y'all get that? So that, that's a huge issue. Let me say that again. According to the published data, 26% of eclamptic seizures happen after the first 48 hours, and as many as 78% of postpartum patients who end up with eclampsia will not have had gestational hypertension or some kind of hypertensive disease in the, in the antecedent pregnancy. Wild, which goes to show, guys, those who get nuanced blood pressure issues beyond the first seven days from delivery, like we've already stated, they are sicker. There's something going on with them. But here's the question. Now, even though, you know, 78% will not have had an antecedent hypertensive issue with the immediate pregnancy that just happened, the question is, is magnesium sulfate still indicated beyond the first seven days from delivery? And I know we always say, oh, you got to give it up to six weeks, mag's possible, absolutely true. So let me, let me just tell you where standard of care is or what's typical practice but how it, it sometimes is not always evidence-based, okay? And, and the reason is because we were trying to protect the patient. So while it's totally reasonable to give max sulfate up to six weeks postpartum for a seizure that happens, um, it, the, the efficacy of magnesium after the first seven days postpartum is, is just very unclear. There's just no data for that. So this is why there's a lot of variation in management here when patients present with de novo postpartum hypertension that's severe or who has signs or symptoms that's compatible with uh, severe criteria, all right? So, so let me just say that again, and that's not my opinion. This is published data, uh, and one of the commentaries that was just released on this, one of the studies, was in the Journal of Maternal Fetal and Neonatal Medicine back in 2015, and it hasn't changed much since that. 
The title of that was The Use of Magnesium Sulfate for Women with Severe Preeclampsia or Eclampsia Diagnosed During the Postpartum Period. And, and what these authors state, what Vigil uh, de Garcia stated was, quote, there's just limited data. Uh, looking at the impact of MAG administration on the incidence of eclampsia among patients with postpartum hypertension, especially in those beyond the first seven days. All right. So it, it, there's a lot of questions here. Do we give MAG? Do we not give MAG? It, to, be, to be the most conservative, and again, it's typical practice, you can give MAG up to six weeks postpartum with doing due diligence to make sure we're not missing something else. But you see how sometimes typical practice oddly enough, is not really evidence-based because the evidence isn't there. So just to be clear, severe pressures in the first 48 hours, absolutely. Severe pressures or criteria for severe disease, first seven days, absolutely. Between seven days and 14, yes, but less clear there. And beyond the first two weeks, definitely unclear. So I'm not saying it's not it's wrong to give it. I'm just saying that we have no data to see if that's, if that's helpful or not. There's very little... Uh, evidence of that because why most eclamptic seizures happen uh, beyond within, well, first of all, within the first uh, 48 hours, and then the biggest uh, chunk after that is 48 hours to the first seven days. So that's the unknown. So if it happens to me and our patients, hey, we've got a patient two weeks postpartum, severe pressures, uh, I, I would likely give her mag and lower her pressures with the understanding to our team, and I document, we just don't have any data if that's going to be helpful or not. Um, but as long as we get mag levels, she has good urine output, uh, and we're watching for signs of toxicity, then we'll be okay. But to say that is completely evidence-driven is not. That's where we're trying to be conservative and patient-protective, but the data is just not there. Is that crazy or what? So, And remember those numbers that we talked about. It's not a small number that will have an eclamptic seizure uh, in the in the non-immediate postpartum interval, 26% of eclamptic seizures happen after uh, the first 48 hours, 26%. Now, if you can, so let's say 30%, right? So that means 70% happen within the first 48, and then the rest happen, the next biggest chunk is within the next seven days. Although, of course, it can happen all the way until six weeks postpartum, but that's much more rare. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We've covered a lot of info, and I said, I can't believe this happened to me. See, this self-fulfilling prophecy, I said, I definitely don't want this to go for like an hour, and we're almost at an hour. It's like 58 minutes or something, so I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. It kind of got away from me a little bit, but there's so much to cover here, and I hope you found it helpful. I promise the next one will be less length than this one. As always, we're thankful for you. Uh, We're happy that you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.